0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of Israel's War Against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. We're joined this evening by two panelists, Gil Troy, a senior fellow at JPPI, professor and historian, as well as Dr. Nadia Bader, Bader, a uh, fellow also at JPPI, a lecturer at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and a demographer. We're going to talk about a bunch of different issues, one of them being uh, Nadia and I were talking earlier today about the division or the breakdown of people of faith or people who are non-observers and where they fall in issues of tolerance and especially maybe towards the conflict with Israel. We're also going to talk about uh, the hostage situation which continues and the different dilemmas that Israel is facing throughout the uh, next few days as it contemplates when to resume the ground offensive, this time into southern Gaza, as opposed to the north, where we know that Hamas's leadership remains intact. And, intact. and we're starting to hear the stories, for example, of what the hostages have endured during the 50 days or so of captivity that they were held there. But before all that, I did an interview earlier today with uh, Michael Eisenberg, a well-known member of Israel's tech industry, a leader in the tech industry, the co-founder and a general partner at Aleph Venture Capital Firm, and who's been continuing to do business and has an interesting take on what entrepreneurs and the high-tech industry needs to do during this tumultuous period in Israel and the effect it's having on the economy, but I recommend you all have a uh, take a listen and a look at the interview with Michael. Here we go. Michael, it's great to have you with uh, the Jewish People Policy Institute. Thanks for finding the time to join us. Um, Thank you. I saw your tweets yesterday. We're talking on Wednesday on Tuesday, sorry, and on Monday, you were at a meeting with Elon Musk, the head of the owner of X and other companies, but otherwise known as Twitter. And he met here with the prime minister, he met here with the president. There were a lot of people who were critical of Musk because of how much Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, has become a cesspool for anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, and so many other manifestations of just evilness around the world, but that he hasn't done enough to purge anti-Semitism. But you actually, I was looking at some of your posts on the visit, and you said that's not the case at all. So I'm curious for that perspective.
1: Look, I I know a lot of people for years who know uh, Elon and who are in his close circle, Uh, many of whom are Jewish. Um, And I've asked in the past about the so-called anti-Semitism. And I have heard seen uh, or uh, heard from them, nor have they seen uh, any evidence of it. I can tell you in my own interaction with him yesterday, I sat next to him for an hour or over an hour um, in a reasonably small room full of people uh, with a lot of important questions uh, on the table. And I saw the opposite. Candidly, I don't see any anti-Semitism. I think it's important to put this moment in context, um, which is uh, what's going on in media. Right. And, and Twitter, I think, or X, uh, Elon views as the public square. And the public square could be a nasty space. And we've moved from a model of edited content and content picked by editors uh, to a much more freewheeling, uh, open air public square society where candidly more goes. Um, and I don't think we want to start getting into my own view is in this new kind of open air market, which is, you know, if you go from the technology world, much more similar to open source software than it is the old closed source software. It's messier. It's just messier. Um, Musk, I will also add, was the first guy uh, to say, when you say run the river, from the river to the sea, that's called calling for genocide and you're off the platform. So you actually de- de-platform them. I'll point out that a lot of the critics of Musk are sitting in universities who let that chant go on all day uh, in universities, don't put an end to it. And yet it's been taken off of Twitter. And I think he wants to have... Uh, a light touch on what he does and doesn't deplatform, You know, incorrectly, by the way, or in in the new world we're in, we have now, you know, 8 billion people think they have a say on things. And so inevitably there's going to be a cacophony of different opinions and different perspectives uh, on what's going on there. Um, And so I I think we have to get used to this. It's very difficult. We all grew up in an era of a, you know, kind of neatly curated uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Um, but that's not the case. And the other thing I'd add is, that all these mainstream media today, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, CNN, BBC, have all decided that their business model is to ignore the 100 percent of the uh, of the world. They're focused on who their um, uh, audiences are. And so the New York Times has taken this progressive stance on just about everything they, you know, for like a fig leaf, uh, they bring a Brett Stevens or something like that to their to their you know their op-ed page but foundationally, they've adopted the narrative of the progressive left and their progressive left newspaper the new york post for what it's worth is on the other side of that um, and so you know that model feels to me pretty broken this is no longer what a friend of mine called Walter Cronkite time where he was talking to 100% of america or time when the new york times tried as best as possible to talk to 100% of america we're in a different era and we need to know that
0: which just raises so many other challenges of where are you supposed to get your information from? And because it's so complicated to get accurate information and you have to go to, I find you have to read a multitude of different platforms. It, it just makes it all the more complicated. Um, well, I, think, I
1: think the point is the following. We need to train people and kids in particular to be suspicious of information yeah. and to do their own research. Primary research is becoming absolutely critical. Don't believe something. First of all, it be deep fakes because of AI and, you know, other fakes because of AI, too, because just the broad range of what's going on out there and being published is different. And so the skill used to be just read the newspaper. You can trust that them. Now the answer is you can't trust anything out there. You need to form your own opinion. And by the way, that's not a bad thing that we force people to form their own opinion. It is a dramatic paradigm shift. But we're in the middle. This is why I get paid for my day job to be a venture capitalist and think about these paradigm shifts. we're deep into this, but 90 percent of the universe hasn't gotten used to this yet. And uh, and the guys in the old guard are trying to hold on still to kind of say you know hey I'm still here and so you know so
0: I want to talk about your day job uh, running Aleph VC uh, here in Israel and Tel Aviv and I just saw a story the other day that you had uh, just led a series of financing for a company called Dream Security new cybersecurity company signed the, the the financing round I think somewhere now down near the border with the Gaza Strip because one at least one of the people if not more. Are currently serving in, in 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 reserves in in the idf there's a lot of concern obviously about the economic downturn that the war is creating we're we're seeing how much this is going to cost projected growth by bank have now been corrected by the end of this year we're looking at lower than what was expected next year even half about one and a half percent so What's your take on the tech industry, which I know you you're you're, you're an expert on. Where do you see that going? What's next? And should we expect people to continue to grow? Should people, in your view, start? Do you want to see more entrepreneurs, more new startups, or should people
1: be playing it safe? So there's a mix of topics in here. One is the macro piece of the economy, um, which relates to the budget, the overall growth rates uh, of the economy, Uh, And where where we're headed in in that perspective, I think um, I'm unpersuaded that the current budget that we have is the right budget for the country um, and that it needs to be much more focused on on growth and infrastructure than it is right now. Now, But we'll leave that aside for a second. Uh, I think the high tech world is going through uh, like a double whammy here. Um, But in my own view, uh, the kind of macro meta issue is bigger than the war issue. And I will explain uh, in mid-November 2021, uh, the Fed started hiking interest rates. The Federal Reserve started hiking interest rates. The Bank of Israel hiked interest rates. Bank of England hiked interest rates. Um, the, uh, uh, the stock market, in particular, tech valuations, corrected. And many investors in tech stopped investing because they couldn't find a price. They couldn't figure out whether there would be valuations of the size we saw in you know COVID time, 2020, 2021, Uh, ever again. And so it took people a while. Now, I've been through this before. This happened when the bubble burst in in 2000. uh, And it takes two plus years, maybe even three, um, actually probably three, uh, to kind of get a lot of stuff out of the system. And so there's been a massive macro slowdown in investing here in the United States and and, and, uh, in other places that is causing companies to go uh, out of business and causing funding to slow down. Add to that the war we have right now, and there's kind of another notch down. Now, in Israel in particular, technology is a much larger percentage of the GDP than any other country in the world. Um, And it accounts, I think, for 32% of tax receipts. Um, And so uh, anything that happens in tech has an outsized effect on Israel for good and for bad. And so the macro slowdown of investing in tech has affected that. Now you add the war to it. My own view of the war impact uh, is that There was like a six-week period, maybe seven weeks now, in which people didn't form companies. So we'll have a lost quarter of company formation. That's new companies. But investment into Israeli companies is still going on. You mentioned the investment we closed. We're closing investments into our companies now from investors abroad in the middle of the war. Because there's just some unique special companies here. And Israeli entrepreneurs have proven that they'll deliver... In the middle of the war, missing 10 to 20 percent of their people, they're delivering and delivering and delivering and delivering. And so uh, the last part of this is the question you asked is, this is a good time to start a company? Hell yes. I'm, I've been joking that uh, well, it's not a joke that the miloing the reserve duty in 8200 uh, has caused the world's best hackathon ever. People turning up, putting mattresses in it for six weeks, the brightest people in the country are you know, living together, sleeping together, and working on breakthrough solutions in real time and it matters in real people's lives. And the innovation is going to come out of this country. Posted. The best incubator mm-hmm. you could create. The best. Best hackathon ever. And uh, what's going to come out here is going to be stunning. Interesting.
0: Very interesting. The, the, I, w- I want to touch upon one last topic with you. Uh, you're the chairman of Shomer Khadash, uh, an NGO, an organization that brings people out. To work in agriculture, but also to provide security to a lot of farming uh, communities and and just farms and ranches across the country, south, north, other places. One of the projects that you've that the Chadash has been doing since the war, since October seventh, has also been integrating Haredim, uh, ultra orthodox men and women, into uh, activities to get them more involved and integrated. And that's one of the big issues, Michael. Right? Is what's going to happen with the ultra-Orthodox community. We saw this, I call them the celebs, right? This group of Haredi celebs, yeah, it's nice, but it's not yet the numbers that we're gonna, we are wanna see. And polls show that still 80% of ultra-Orthodox believe that they should not serve in the IDF, right? So it's nice to see some of the social activity, but I wonder, and you've worked a lot with this community and the sector in, in not just in integrating in Shomer Kadash but also into high tech, we got to break the trend somehow,
1: no? Yeah, so um, a lot to unpack there. Uh, the first thing is that I think there's a giant difference between the uh, political, you know, what they call the polytruks or the askanim uh, of the Haredi political parties who would like to control their, their flock uh, and, and the street or the younger generation. I think that there's a meaningful dichotomy there. In general, we see a decline of rabbinic power, um, not all, just the ultra-Orthodox community. It's just an ongoing decline of, uh, after 2,000 years of rabbinical uh, rabbinate-led Judaism, you see a decline. Um, and I think the young Haredim are the most hopeful sign in this country, candidly. Um, they're voting with their feet. Uh, and so we have thousands every week of of ultra-Orthodox Haredi young volunteers coming to the fields of the Shomer chadash. We launched this program called Mishmer, which is a takeoff on Shomer, meaning protecting in Mishmer, which is a, an old yeshiva custom of staying up all night Thursday night to uh, to study Torah, uh, in which we said, OK, the Haredi communities are, are unarmed. Uh, how do we help them? And so we set up these kind of watch groups and including arms training, etc., We have thousands and thousands of signups and many hundreds have already gone through training. And the demand for these courses is unbelievable. And these are authentically Haredi, ultra-Orthodox people who are joining into the country. In addition to that, you see things like MIGO and Code Code, which are tech training programs to bring Haredim into high tech. And that's ongoing. Sociological change, however, takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But we see many good signs in the younger generation. And I'd even add in the last week or so, there was this horrific story with this Rabbi Bunim Schreiber, so-called Rabbi Bunim Schreiber, who said just awful things about the state and the army uh, and what the Haredi, the ultra-orthodox view should be uh, of the army. I, I, for one, I don't know if I was alone, launched a, launched an assault on the guy. Two days later, uh, he was forced to make, a, a, so to speak, apology. It's about as good an apology as you can get in that world. Um, saying that his stuff was taken out of uh, context. It wasn't, by the way. it was not, I listened to the whole thing, and it was as awful as reported, and even worse. But nonetheless, he walked it back. And then just yesterday, another rabbi whose name escapes me, uh, got asked by a bunch of uh, female teachers uh, about the same topic, and he tore into them, uh, saying that you need your education changed. You've got big problems. So I think we're starting to see, and you see Rav David label of Ahavas uh, stepping up and kind of mainstreaming, And I think we'll see over time a uh, Haredim uh, mainstream into Israeli society. And this is just a, a great source of Zionist uh, optimism, uh, power, and economic growth going forward. It's not happening overnight, and it won't happen overnight. There are there, there are real gaps, but, but it will happen. And, and I'm super pleased to see it, and I have a lot of faith in it.
0: On that optimistic note, Michael, I want to thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Yaakov.
0: That was uh, Michael Eisenberg kind of looking at the, a bunch of issues. But what I found most interesting was that this is actually the moment in time for uh, Israeli high-tech entrepreneurs to continue to develop and and do what they do as entrepreneurs and, and make new companies. Uh, Nadia, I wanted to start with you. Uh, we had We had discussed earlier today this issue of all the protests that are going on against Israel at the moment, right? And you were telling me some interesting research that you've done about the non-believers and people who are of religious background or have faith and 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 what their how they would approach a conflict maybe like Israel and Hamas that's going on. So why don't you whatever I just said probably doesn't make a lot of sense. You could say it a lot smarter smarter than me.
2: Okay. So um for decades people have been debating whether religion makes people more tolerant, whether it promotes you know racism, prejudice, and so on. Um, And we haven't really reached a conclusion. It looks like different elements of religion might do different things and we have to split it into its constituent parts. Now, at the same time, what we're seeing in the Western world is religious change on a scale that we haven't seen since the Reformation. And what I mean by that is that vast numbers of people are exiting organized religion. So we call these people unaffiliated or religious nones, N-O-N-E. Meaning when they're given a list of, you know, what religion are you, a list of options, and they say none of the above, that's who I'm talking about. And what's interesting is that a lot of people assume that it's people who don't have a religion who would be the most tolerant, right? They'd be the least Islamophobic and the least anti-Semitic and the least racist and the least xenophobic. But it turns out that it's not so simple. If you lump all the people who don't have a religion together, that's what you'll find. But they're a big group. And they're not at all the same. So if you separate out the people who, well, I'm looking at Europe, so the people who are raised Christian and have since exited, and you look at the people who've never had a religion, you'll find that actually never having had a religion is associated with a greater degree of intolerance. Now, part of that is because elements of religion like belief, and you can actually put this in the model, tend to increase tolerance, and these people don't believe. Whereas people who were once Christian are more likely to believe. And part of it is because this new identity has coalesced and they consider people to, they consider a strong identity and they don't consider borders to be passable. So they're not tolerant of people who um, are different than themselves. That's an increasing phenomenon that we're finding, that these people very much have a sense of in-group and out-group and anyone who isn't them increasingly, they're less tolerant of.
0: So, give me, give me the now a deeper so the commentary on this. How, how, what does this mean for support for Israel? Maybe in the day after or or during the op, the, the operation. I, I was looking up a poll earlier, which showed that uh, it was it was taken by Reuters mid November. It's so about November fifteenth, sixteen. That found that, for example, in the United States, American support for American public support for the government to continue to stand with Israel. That was the way they phrased the question had been 40-something percent and now is down to 30 percent, so it dropped by about 10 points. Now, obviously, you don't know how many of those people are believers or nuns, but what is what could this potentially mean in terms of the, 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 the way that we are perceived or the way that the, the conflict is perceived?
2: So I think the change over time is to do with the change in events, but one thing that I can speak to is the big difference between, say, the United States and the United Kingdom. So in the United States, we see... For instance, uh, around 40% of the same kind of Ipsos poll they did, America and the UK, so uh, 40% of people, Americans, say that their government should support Israel, 2% say they should support the Palestinians. In the UK, that's 13% should support Israel, 12% should support the Palestinians. So it's pretty evenly divided. The rest of the people mainly want the government to stay out of the whole story. Um, And I think what we can say is there are some really important distinctions between different countries. So one is that the United States is a much more religious society, this group of People who've never had a religion is much smaller in the United States than you would find in Western Europe and particularly in the UK. The other thing that we know, and you know, we had have been working on some quantitative data that really shows this, is that the left wing is much more likely to be anti-Semitic. They are much more tolerant of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. And when it comes to Jews, not really, and the extreme left, even more negative than those in the center. Um, and again, Europe is situated much to the left. Of America, so I think when you take all these things together, it can sort of shed light on the differences that we're seeing emerging in different countries, the different attitudes that we're finding, um, and the different ways that Israel is perceived.
0: So, Gil, you've obviously uh, studied a lot of U.S. history and written a number of books on different U.S. presidents, but America is a very religious country, as Nadia pointed out, um, but it also has that very strong progressive flank right now. I, 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 I. I hate to say it, but I love the the ring to the genocide Joe, <laughs> you know <laughs> name that they've started calling Joe Biden, um, which obviously is wrong. But put that aside. But it, it's coming from somewhere, and I'm curious. you know, how much does the religion, if in, in your analysis of it, how much does it play a role in, let's say, the president? You know, like Biden, a very Catholic, uh, uh, you know, believer and 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 religious man goes to church, I think almost every Sunday, often back in delaware in his in his his home church. um what does what do, do you think that that plays a role in the way he's been approaching the the israel Hamas war?
3: First of all, I just have to say how heartbreaking it is to hear that liberals cannot understand what Hamas is, how homophobic, how sexist. How anti-democratic this group is, and we just have to put that out there. We keep it. We 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 just take it for granted, and we just have to. We just have to emphasize how absurd it is. I I, I met with a group of uh, gays the other day who said, "What's Israelis?" Who said, "I'm out." How could they not see that? So I just have to start with that. Uh, second, indeed, you know everybody's been talking for years about how the evangelical community is very pro-Israel. But I think there also is a very strong streak in the Catholic community, uh, despite sometimes the Pope's tendency to be a little bit um, "quote unquote" even-handed, which often sounds amoral. Uh, this is very strong sense in the Catholic community. Also, understanding the power of Israel, the the emotional power, the moral power, the intellectual power, the ideological power of Israel, and so there is a generational dimension to what's going on in the conflict. But I think there also is religious dimension. And let's also put the other factor in, which is that there's this strange alliance between Islamists and atheists. That the most progressive forces who tend to dismiss religion, somehow when it comes to Islamism, give Islamism a pass. They're hypercritical of evangelicals. They're hypercritical of conservative traditional Catholics. And yet somehow they have this blind spot about the most murderous dimensions. To Islamist ideology. And so what do we see? One is that sometimes this is about tribes, right? That we like to put all kinds of names about it, that it's it's connected to ideas. But there's a weird way in which support for Israel, pro and con has become this team sport. And team progress, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, and team Islam is on one side, and team Jewish, team evangelical, I would say Team Democracy and Team Catholics are on another side, and it's sociological as much as it is ideological. So, if we
0: if we do think forward looking, though, Gil, the the, the the trend is not
3: going in a good direction. Then, so that that's where the generational dimension comes in. That even within the evangelical community, which has been so the American evangelical community, which has been so strongly staunchly pro Israel, they're starting to see a generation gap, and there we you know. <laughs> I'm a historian, so I'm really good at looking backwards. Uh, when I have to look forwards, my, my my glasses get a little cloudy. But there's the big question. The question is: Is it that the more distant each generation is from the Holocaust and the moral clarity that that brought, the more generational di- the more generational differences there is from the '67 war and the moral clarity that brought? Is it that, or as people age, do they leave the idiocy? that their college professors imposed on them behind? And do they grow into a certain wisdom? So those are two clashing theories that I'll just sort of put out there. And we don't we don't quite know, but there certainly is a concern that when we look at the polls and we break it down generationally, that the younger you are within the Jewish community as well, the more critical you are of Israel, the more unwilling you are to see what happened on October 7th through moral terms, through ethical terms. And, and that's why we hear the here, I hear it every day, the silence of feminists, the silence of the LGBTQ community, the silence of liberals. And I'm starting to call these feminists feminasties. I'm starting to call these liberals slobberols. They've lost their moral center, and we have to call them out. And many of us in the Jewish community, many of us in the American Jewish community have signed check after check to support them, have to start pulling those checks and have to start more and more breaking friendships and saying enough is enough. It's, but I don't uh, feel strongly about this. No, no, clearly. But 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 the it,
0: it, it's it's something that I think you know we should have a lot of concern about. And whenever I see these protests and marches, Queers for Palestine, uh, there's a right. part of me that just says, "I'll buy you the ticket, right? I'm exactly happy to pay for the ticket to Palestine. March down go, Gaza Square, right? You should go there and please negotiate for us peace. I'm sure you will be able to achieve it." Um I'm sorry. I couldn't hold. No, me. but also look ah. who
3: was killed on October 7th. They didn't care if you were a peace maker or okay, right? They didn't they didn't check your 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 card. They just killed you because you were an Israeli or because you were Israeli adjacent. Tain, the police, uh Palestinian, Bedouin, uh Druze, it didn't matter.
0: Yeah, Nadia um you know, Gil just mentioned Bedouin and and you and I we spoke about this earlier today that something that's kind of flown under the radar, uh, definitely for me as well, and I follow them quite carefully, uh, is is the fact that there are a number of Muslim Bedouins who are being held hostage by Hamas. Uh, Their story was kept a bit under wraps for a while, but it started to come out. And, and, And that says something also about the, you know, what we were just talking about, the kind of the religion doesn't really make a difference, right? I mean, there's a specific story about one Bedouin family that you were were talking to me about.
2: Right. And they exemplify why this has been a little bit under the radar. One, because they didn't want to publicize it in the same way. They felt it was more effective to work under the radar. And secondly, because they have an issue with, for instance, publishing photos of women in their family. So now that we're at the stage where most of the children, you know, the hostages under the age of 18 have been released, we're still waiting for Aisha who is 17 years old. She wears a hijab. She's a religious Muslim. They must have known it to be released and she was taken captive along with her two brothers and her father who's a diabetic who hasn't had access to his medication and um, other members of the extended family. They were working together in a kibbutz. They'd gone there um, early in the morning. Um, Actually her brother-in-law was there with his small children. They were also taken and then we hear these strange stories, right? Not everybody who was part of this group of kidnappers was exactly the same. Not all of them were Hamas. I don't know what was going on. So at some point, it looks like her brother-in-law and his four small children were able to turn back and go home and they made it home. But she and her brothers and her father are still held. And there's no kind of notice of this and no reaction and no kind of questioning of what kind of thing is going on and there are other cases where they saw that women wearing a hijab and they still killed them and all kinds of horrible stories that we're hearing coming from the Bedouin community there. And clearly religion is not what's important to them.
0: Right. It was also very random what happened on that day on October 7th uh, of, of who got killed, who was abducted, who was taken, who wasn't. Why did they skip a house and go to the next house? It, it, these are... Questions that I think no one, no one, we may never get real answers to. But, but I want to I just go back one second to the, the religious question, Nadia, because one of the things that you've also been studying is Jewish schools and, 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 and the number of kids, Jewish kids who are going to Jewish schools. So you can tell us that, where things are today. But the question that I've wondered, and you don't have the data on this yet, Is looking forward with the explosion of anti-Semitism in your home country of the UK, but also across the U.S. and France and other places, will that have an impact in your assessment on enrollment in Jewish schools? So maybe why don't you just kind of catch us up to date on where things stand at the moment and then give us your prediction, like any good academic, of what's going to be in the future.
2: Okay, well, the catch-up, like Gil said, is easier than the projection, but um, the catch-up goes something like this. In most countries, um, the vast majority of Orthodox children go to Jewish schools. So there's been a huge growth in most countries in the number of children enrolled in Jewish schools simply because the Orthodox community is growing. Right? So that's kind of a very simple equation. Um, we do know from data collected by the European Union um, looking into anti-Semitism, they included in their data gathering, they wanted to know why people sent to Jewish schools. This was a uh, survey conducted in 2018 in 12 EU countries, which at that point did include the UK. Um, And they asked people, you know, do you send to Jewish school or non-Jewish school and why do you send your children? What's the reason? And they were allowed to pick a few options and one of them was anti-Semitism. And it's really interesting because despite attacks on Jewish schools in France, for instance, and I know anecdotally and that, after that happened, some parents pulled their children out of the school because they thought it was a dangerous place to be. other people sent their children to the school because they felt like you know they were safer in a Jewish school. So this debate is playing out. it's really live. About twenty percent of Jewish parents in Europe say who have a child of school age say that that's a concern for them. It's one of the things that influences their decision of where to send their child to school and um, in France, the number's higher, unsurprisingly. But what's interesting is that it overwhelmingly pushes people to send to Jewish schools. Now, the caveat here is that um, what influences people and how they feel about things is not always directly linked to the number of anti-Semitic incidents, say. So if you put that in the equation, you know, how many anti-Semitic incidents there have been or have you experienced an anti-Semitic attack, that's not as impactful. So it's hard to know how people are going to feel. One would guess that they would feel that anti-Semitism is more see We've been getting huge numbers of reports of incidents of anti-Semitism in schools. So one would assume that would feed through, but predictions are hard to make.
0: And there was, of course, that incident at a school, I think it was at Hillcrest, Queens, where a a teacher, a public school in America, a teacher had uh, gone to a pro-Israel rally and was basically uh, chased in the school, had to hide and lock herself in a room uh, out of fear that her students, teenagers, would, would potentially do something to her. Uh, Gil, you know, I want to turn for one moment to the hostages. Tonight, we're hopefully going to see the release of another 10. And this is day five of this pause or lull or ceasefire, depending how you look at it. One of the things that I've been thinking is that the world is obviously falling in love with the ceasefire, right? And I would guess that some Israelis are falling in love with the ceasefire, too, not having to wake up at 6 a.m., And look at their phones and see who were the soldiers who were tragically killed overnight during operations in Gaza. And things have been relatively quiet. But we do know in the back of our mind, or even in the front, that Hamas is still there. They're in the south, leadership intact, brigades, capabilities, thousands of fighters still pose a threat to the state of Israel. So we have this mission that still has to be grappled with and confronted. But the fact that th- there is the ceasefire, there's going to be a lot of interest. And we're already hearing President Biden talk about the fact that we need to extend this even more. We need to get more of the hostages. And we're supposed to get 10 today, maybe 10 tomorrow. And then we're going to get to day six, seven. And then the questions will start to be, OK, how many will Israel get? And what's the price of all of that? And by the way, to start to prepare the world for when the bombardment, let's say, of Khan Yunus begins, which it might begin Everyone's going to say, why are you doing that? There was just quiet, right? They're all going to have forgotten October 7th, and they're going to think, oh, no, we're just bombing communists for no reason. So, so I actually you know, called up a friend today who serves in one of those governmental roles and said, I think you guys got to start putting out some information now to start to prepare and do, lay the groundwork for when the, when the operation resumes. But we have these two interests that are, again, going up against one another. And the question is, if you're the prime minister, Gil, at what point do you say, okay, I got to stop and we have to move forward with the, with the ground offensive?
3: I think we have to start introdu- introducing the word dehumanization to the conversation. Nigel's words upset me deeply, as did Michael Eisenberg's, because they speak with such humanity. They speech with, They speak with such respect for these Bedouins they never heard of. Uh, Michael speaks about uh, uh, has the ability to criticize a Haredi rabbi because he understands that human beings are complex and the dehumanization in the language when even some of the Israeli newspapers talk about the latest tranche of hostages or talks about, uh, the Washington Post talks about captives from both sides. The way in which these individuals, these 12-year-old boys and girls, these 47-year-old mothers are being dehumanized and being treated like pawns, like, like poker chips, is so despicable and so much on Hamas's terms. And I think it's really important as we start building toward the necessary return to the fight against the evil of Hamas and the degree to which Hamas has dominated the Gaza Strip, to start making the moral argument. I don't buy this notion that Israel's position is immoral. The moral position in this conflict is to remember who started on October 7th, who raped, who pillaged, who murdered, who kidnapped, who, in a sense, enslaved? We hear that women were in cages to go back to that very painful moment and say, This is, I mean, this is putting a new meaning to the word causus belli. And we also have to say to Joe Biden very clearly yes, every human life is, is sacred. And we think of the hostages who have been saved, but there are 9.3 million hostages called Israelis, Jews, and as Nadia pointed out, non Jews alike. There are hundreds of millions of hostages throughout the world, Westerners who don't want to start accepting a precedent where any crazy terrorist group which swarms Paris or London or New York and is lucky enough on that day, because that's the one day that the defenses are down, to take some hostages. Or 900 students in Hillcrest High School, which is right near where I uh, went to school. I went to Jamaica High School, 20 blocks away from there in Queens. And had they succeeded in hitting that woman or or taking her hostage before the 25 New York City cops armed were forced to come in, this is not the the world we want to live in. And so this is a civilizational battle. And yes, everyone who calls for a ceasefire thinks they're for peace. But before they call for a ceasefire, and I say this to J Street, and I say this to sources in the American administration, go back. What were you saying in 2012 and 2009 and 2014 and 2021? If you called for ceasefire again and again and again, are you going to take some moral responsibility, use that word, moral responsibility for what happened on October 7th? It's really easy to throw Bibi Netanyahu under the bus and say, oh, you know, he and his Concepcia failed. And I certainly have my criticisms. But we also have to look into the mirror and say, to what extent were we calling? Was Bernie Sanders calling for ceasefire then? Was Jay Street calling for ceasefire then? Were other Democrats calling for ceasefire then? And if Republicans in charge, I'd be calling out the Republicans. But the moral issue here is not just about the hostages. The moral issue here is how to make sure that Hamas can never again, not just threaten Israelis, Jewish and non-Jewish, but create a precedent for all the evil people in the world, all the terrorists in the world, to start trying to follow.
0: Gail, uh if you're interested, I'd be happy to accompany you to your old public school. If you want to give up, I could be your, your, try to be your security guard. You want to give, give a talk there. Um,
3: Na- Nadia, I trust a- you better than most of those people. So yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nadia, you recently wrote a piece for Times of Israel where you're talking about why did uh, why is the Arab world not providing more refuge for the Palestinians? And it's something that's been on my mind also because I think the great com- a great comparison can be made between the way Europe reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where all of Europe opened up its gates to to receive and absorb millions of refugees, and not a single Arab country, not one has said, oh, no, we want to take in the Palestinian uh, refugees, right? What does that tell us?
2: I have no idea because the standard excuse is, oh, but we don't want them to, you know, be taken away from their land and they won't go back. But exactly the same concerns were voiced over Ukraine. And it was very clear. People who felt they wanted to not be there during the war could leave during the war, could find a safe place to be, and could go home whenever they wanted to. This was not some kind of forced repatriation program. This was just to save women and children and elderly people from being stuck in a war zone where it was incredibly dangerous. And I don't understand for the life of me where nobody's offering the same thing to the people of Gaza.
0: you You want my opinion why because they they <laughs> the answer is sadly I hate to laugh. A, they don't want them. B, they want them to stay here and they want israel to 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 sadly kill them. Right, and so that their blood in their eyes will be on Israel's hands, even though it's the responsibility of Hamas. These people, you know, we were speaking about this earlier today at JPPI in our in our weekly staff meeting, but just about in my view of it, how there is a the, 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 the images and the tragedy of what's happening in Gaza is, is is terrible, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. Right, there's nothing wrong with recognizing. The pain and suffering that people are 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 encountering there, but but with that said, it's a question then of who's responsible. I would argue it's Hamas that's responsible. Other people would say it's Israel that's responsible. But I think they do this with an intention because they want us to be blamed and accused and 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 hammered a, a, in the in the international media arena. That's part of the part of this war is the information battle. Uh, before we wrap up, Gil. I want to first of all wish you Maslotov. You had a son who got married on Sunday night. So congratulations to you and the wider, larger Troy family. But but I'm sure that you will have a good answer for me to the question of it's gotta be hard to some extent making a wedding, which is such such a simcha, such a beautiful, joyous occasion, in a time when a country is at war. And 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 of course, the two things should be able to happen, right? They, 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 weddings go on, life goes on, but I'm sure that somewhere in your mind, because I do know you, this was this was out there. It was it was it was on your mind, and it was something that was being thought about. I'm curious your feelings.
3: I just want to go back to the previous conversation and say what we're really seeing is the porno- pornography of Palestinian suffering, and it's immoral. Talk about morality to take the suffering of human beings and leverage it for political gain, which is not what well, we're not doing, but what Hamas is doing. Uh, and absolutely, I, th- throwing that wedding was in some ways the hardest thing we've ever done in our lives. Uh, about three weeks ago, we were in Destino in Shorish, which is this amazing wedding hall. And I'm sitting there in this meeting where we're talking about, should the tables be round or square? Should the tablecloths be lavender or blue? And I'm I'm thinking like, this is the craziest thing we've ever done. But the fact that my two kids, because now my daughter-in-law is also my daughter, uh, Tali and, uh, and and Yoni, decided in the middle of this war to continue was the most powerful affirmation of life. So it was the dumbest thing we ever did, the most trivial thing we ever did, the, the most insane thing we ever did, but also the most profound thing we ever did. And the chuppah that we had, and I can say we, because I was just standing there, but my two kids and uh, our amazing rabbi from Hartman, Jory uh, Yoshua, pulled it off. It was a roller coaster. It was a classic Jewish roller coaster. It was a classic Israeli roller coaster. It was a classic human roller coaster. We had two two uh, cousins from the Gaza corridor who had been in safe rooms, each of them in different communities, who survived, who got up and said a prayer for the Mifunim, for those who have been evacuated. We had my son Yoni's commander, who's from Sterot, who had lost 10 friends and relatives on October 7th and has five missing give a a prayer for the kidnappers, and for, for the kidnapped victims. And we also had so much joy, joy, joy. And at that moment, we were really experiencing Jewish history, we were experiencing Zionist history, and it was just one of these kind of transcendent moments where we all understood, and as we danced the Hora, and as I knocked against people carrying submachine guns, as I was in a suit, which is very rare for me, and others were in military uniform, which is rare for them, we all understood the power of the affirmation of life. And we saw that we really are a cult of life. And so it was the best decision. Again, it was my kid's decision, not mine, to do it. But it was very, very difficult. And everyone who came just thanked us for being able to kind of carve out those couple of hours to celebrate. And that's why I'm so sure we're gonna win because we have morality on our side and we have life on our side. We had 3,200 births in Jerusalem alone in October, twice the number of people killed and kidnapped on October 7th. And day after day, we have more people building lives, building families. And in fact, my son not only became a husband this week, but also became an uncle because his uh, wife, Tali, had a sister who the next day went into labor and just today had a baby. I'm Yisrael al That's where we're going to (laughs) win.
0: Thank you very much, Gil. Thank you very much, Nadia. And thanks to everyone for joining us this evening. And we'll be back tomorrow with another episode looking at Israel's war against Hamas. In the meantime, to a quiet night. Thank you very much.